You're listening to The Outspoken Bible, a podcast from Scottish Bible Society with Fiona Stewart, Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of The Outspoken Bible. I am Fiona Stewart. I'm joined by Neil Glover. Hello. Hello. And Jen Robertson. Hello. Hi, Fiona. And Neil. Now, Hi, Jen. both of you. Yeah, both of you. I have to say, I'm slightly hesitant to ask you both how you are after last episode <laughs> when you gave full full medical histories. So I've got a different question this morning. <laughs> Good. Uh, okay. What is giving you cause for celebration this week? Mm. Um, our son, Sam, has started work at Abernethy for, well, a kind of a gap year. And yeah, it was just joyous to drop him off. Um, like every other human being, uh, the journey of being human is not without its complexities. And yeah, there was just a, a sense of here's a, a new chapter for him. And the, the the house where he's staying, the staff house accommodation where he's staying is the one that I moved into uh, 26 years ago. So there was a nice sense of symmetry there. So wow. go, Sam. He's not quite as far away as Bolivia. So I haven't got quite that same sense of separation, but it still feels a little bit like he's far away. Food bill's going to go down in the house, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> Cause for celebration. Yeah, yeah. Jen? My celebration, well, uh, it's not as profound as Neil, but on Saturday I've got a week's holiday. Oh, that's, and yeah. And Alan and I are going to Gatehouse of Fleet, which oh. is brilliant. Tremendous. And I'm looking forward to going to the Red Kite feeding station, which I've never managed to do, although it's just up the road in Lauriston. And maybe get some good photos of red kites eating some food. Brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, we were celebrating my mum's 80th birthday at the oh, weekend. So oh. we were up in your neck of the woods, Neil, because we were up in Perthshire and had a lovely time. And where, so, where yeah. were you? Well, we stayed in Pitlochry, uh-huh. and, but we were mooching about Grantley quite a lot. Oh, just we down the road, the yeah. Grantley Hotel twice for lunch. That's oh, a good nice. one. <laughs> And uh, then we came back down through Aberfoyle actually on, on Sunday to come home and uh, then split off in our separate ways and went back to Edinburgh and Glasgow. So it was good. Um, right. So that's good. We're all, we're all in a celebratory mode, which is good because that'll <laughs> take us neatly into what we're talking about later. And um, before we do get started, just a quick plug again for Christmas resources from SBS uh, and a reminder for something that's coming in 2022. So if you haven't got your Christmas resources yet, you can get those at scottish.bible forward slash Christmas. And on there, you'll find links to the Christmas Journeys family resources that Jen talked about last time, also to the Advent Reader and to a new Gospel of John that's called Light and Life. It looks beautiful, I think. I saw Jen Jen did a little demonstration, Neil, for me on WhatsApp um, of, of opening the book. It looks fantastic. There will be a video of the book for everybody to experience on social media this weekend, I think. Well, Jen, I mean, I'm enjoying your videos. They're, they're just great. Uh, also, coming for January, so and it's a bit of a reminder, really, we, there's going to be some more resources, I think, coming out around the Book of Job. So we did the audio drama back earlier in the year around the Book, book of Job, and there's going to be some um, resources that go with that. So if you haven't caught that, that's called An End to the Darkness. The audio drama is built around the story of Job, and it's probably quite a good time to listen to it. I was thinking winter evenings, mm. kind of Korean, listen to a story, um, find something intriguing, and you can find that on Spotify on and obviously through SBS itself. So those are a couple of resources to flag up 
an end to the darkness and the Christmas resources. And then obviously, don't forget, we love to hear from you. Email address for contact is outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org. Or you can just email one of us. Find you on social. Find us on our socials, exactly. Or, or contact through the SBS socials as well. That's a good way to do it. So, Neil, I think without further ado, it's time for Glover's Off. Glover's Off this week. I think we'll have a contribution from our mutual good friend, Jen Robertson. So it'll be Glover and Robertson's off. It's about geese this week because I love them. I absolutely love them. They were a big part of my story uh, coming here. And just at this time of year, I kind of, September seems to be the time you see them the most, but there are loads of them. I ran past a whole, or went past a whole load in a field yesterday, and I just love seeing them. There's something about geese which I just find magical. It's the way that they fly. It's that V formation where um, they encourage each other. I remember once when I was coming here, somebody talked about the difference between a herd of buffalo, where if you happen to kill the leader, then the, the, the herd disintegrates, whereas geese are models of distributed leadership. I, I love the, the spirituality of them. I, I was part of a group for many, many years called the Wild Goose Worship Group. And we used to say the origin of our name was because the Celtic image for the Holy Spirit was the wild goose. But it turns out that, well, it's historically difficult to, to justify. There are Celtic images for wisdom. For example, the owl and the salmon both personify wisdom. But there is a cross, apparently, in Aber Lady, which has a bird on it, which may be a goose, which may be a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Who knows? But uh, yeah, and I I love I love the fact that they travel such huge different distances. For me, they're an image of pilgrimage, of of journey. They embody this relationship that we have with the Atlantic, flying out to Iceland and to Canada. And for me, symbolising the fact that the Atlantic Ocean has always had this pull on the on the Scottish imagination, not least in our relationship with Ireland and uh, also our relationship with with America. So. For me, uh, geese, many of which I think are the grey lag geese that I'm seeing around, uh, are are my glovers off magical, sacred image of God. They remind me of one of my favourite poems, uh, The Wild Goose by Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. Uh, what are you going to do with your one wild, precious life? And I believe that our good friend Jane Robertson has been writing on geese of late. Have you read what she's written on Geese? No, because I am a bad friend who has not <laughs> been on social media properly. She she has been writing on Geese. I have. Do you want, can I read my can I read my Geese poem, Fiona? I mean, is it I, too I'm long? You. I don't know. I don't think so. I think Glover's Off would be incomplete without the reading of said poem. Now, this poem um, is because of foolproof creative arts because of the words that we were given during COP26. And the word that inspired this poem was movement. And it made me think of migrating geese, and in particular, the white-fronted geese that travel from Greenland to Dumfries and Galloway. So here, here's my offering to these geese. The darkness compresses the day from both ends. The hours of light are fewer. The white-fronted geese of Greenland lift their heads to the sky and yap. In a flurry of wings, they launch into the air. This is no brief flight to avoid danger. This is it. Time to go. As they ascend, their wings beat harder. They will reach the same speed that I am permitted to travel through the suburban streets of Glasgow in my car. Forming into a scheme, 
the goose at the front has no friend to block her headwind, no slipstream to help pull her forward. No goose can take that responsibility continuously. They move in and out of the lead position. They fly across the Denmark Strait for a brief sojourn on Iceland, then on over the North Atlantic before choosing the most beautiful flight path across Scotland. Geese migrate by remembering landmarks. Do they recognise Kizimul Castle as they pass over Castle Bay? Are they awed by the white sands of Tyree? Does Finladen Loch on Isla tempt them to stop? As they pass over Campbelltown Harbour, do they dodge the gulls? Do they quicken their speed over Turnberry? As they fly over the Galloway Forest and skim round the Merrick, do they know they are nearly there? With a laughing call to all who want to hear, they arrive at Loch Ken. Movement directed by light and memories passed on from generation to generation. Oh, Jen, that was beautiful. Very beautiful. I like geese. I was at a poetry reading recently where the one of the two poets commented that no one ever applauds at poetry readings, but if you've done a really good poem at the end, everyone just goes, hmm. <laughs> I true. did at the end mm. there. Mm. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> well, that was lovely. Thinking about geese, maybe we should incorporate poetry into the. Mm. No, oh, I'd like any more features in. It's long enough as it is, isn't it? <laughs> Hard enough for Amy to edit. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So Glover's off about uh, about geese and a, a little poetry contribution to add into it. Fantastic. So today we have reached the end of the book of Nehemiah and we're reading chapters 8 to 13. We're picking up from where we left off last time. The walls are completed and everyone is settling in. Neil, is there anything that we should note as we come to these chapters? It's maybe worth saying a little bit about background, just for a reminder that people have been exiled in the year 586. 47 years later, Cyrus has allowed them to come back home. 23 years later, the temple has been dedicated 58 years later, Ezra returns and spurs on a rejuvenation of the, of the temple and the reading of the law. And 13 years after that, Nehemiah returns. And that's around about the year 445. So that's about 140 years after the original exile. I think the lesson here is that rebuilding and healing takes a long time mm -hmm. and many attempts. Hmm. And... When you look at the page of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're only a few chapters apart from each other and you kind of feel, oh, things go wrong and then God sorts it out and then it goes wrong and then God sorts it out. But when you're living in it, it's years and years and years of waiting. And I think for me, this is a lesson about the, the long perspective of God and the deep wells of trust that we have to give our lives to, that just because it doesn't look like things aren't being fixed now, it doesn't mean that within the whole plan of God, it's not. And I think there's something there about, I think of the many, many generations who lived in the in-between times and who didn't get to see the great marking points that we we see in this text you know the the people who lived in exile and didn't get to see the return the the people who never got to see the temple rebuilt the people who never got to see the walls rebuilt and yet they were an essential part of the story there's something about trusting your life even if epochs aren't being marked every second chapter 
Wow, that was that was quite the yeah, quite the summary, Neil. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry to <did> that. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, well, we'll, we'll, well, I think we might come back to that when we talk about the end chapters and and how Nehemiah ends actually, or how I mean, the, how he as a character um, ends his ministry. I think that's, there's some interesting stuff in there about that. But that was very that was great. Thank you, Jen. How did you get on? Last time, remember you were saying that you found it quite hard to approach the book of Nehemiah because of your past experience, and we, we talked a bit about that yeah. uh, that book. Um, how did you find the the latter chapters? I think the the key thing for me in these chapters. I think it's mentioned a couple of times. It's when all the people gather together and uh, it does mention women and children, which is good. Nice, inclusive. uh, It's an inclusive language rather than just the men being there listening. But it makes us be common a couple of times that it was uh, all the people who could understand that were there. Uh, and, And that took me to thinking about our church in the West today, where I, or in Scotland, even more specifically, where I think we still, um, I still hear fairly frequently that for certain aspects of church life, um, children need to understand to be part of it, and 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 then that took me to exploring um, like sort of theories of of faith development by John Westerhoff, and and what it means to be part of a worshiping community when we we don't have a cognitive understanding and that'll be a a large number of people and and we are rightly very concerned in churches about being inclusive to everybody in in the physical space but I think for me these chapters address the question of are we inclusive from a spiritual uh, perspective and so whatever age you are uh, do we still elevate uh, being able to cognitively express and understand your faith rather than um it it being more than that there'd be more dimensions to how we connect to god and how we connect to each other and i think there's beauty in the in the passages as well although it talks about that need to understand they then all all go off at certain points and have these beautiful uh, festivals together where they eat and they drink and they they celebrate together which is not a cognitive experience so there's a a lot of that which these chapters took me to explore and think about and go back to things i'd read in the past I mean, you're both on full flow today in terms of, in terms of your <laughs> articulacy. Um, thank you. There's about three different things I want to drill into with, with that. One being Westerhoff, because you, you alluded to somebody there that people might not be familiar with. Um, second being about how you root that in the text. So what is it that you're noticing that, that I'd like to talk about? And then I would love us to just drill a wee bit more into that thing about cognitive uh, understanding. So can we start then? Let, let's talk about the faith development stuff first of all. You mentioned Westerhoff. Now I'm familiar with him because he, he writes about faith development and young people. It's mm-hmm. been a while though since I've engaged with him and there might be some <laughs> people who don't know who that is. So do you want to yeah. give us a, a, bit of, a bit of background to that? Yes, John, John Westerhoff, his main book that you should look for if you're wanting to explore his work a bit more is called Will Our Children Have Faith? Which I think he wrote in the 1970s, so quite a wee while ago. Um, and he talks about faith development. And, and yes, you're right, Fiona, it is about children and young people, but it's actually for all of us, all, all through our lives and, and how we connect with God. And in that his first uh, piece of work in the 70s, he talks about um, how we come... There's four different, I'm trying to think of the words because stages is the word that comes to mind, but it's not really stages, but it's more like four places you move into in and out of. And so you have the first one, which would be associated with 
very young children. It's a sort of experiential, experiential um, stage of or, or place of development of faith. So if you're two and you're in the creche at, nurse, at church, <laughs> the love and the experience and the great toys uh, and knowing you belong is, is part of your faith development and your connection with God. It's an experiential thing. And then you've got, you move, If I mean, I will talk in ages just because it's probably helpful to understand mm-hmm. it. And if you move maybe into when you're about seven or eight, you start doing a bit more sort of, um, it's about joining, it's about being part of it. And, you know, if you can imagine any eight-year-olds, you know that, you know, being part of what you're doing and you're, this is your place and your group. And, and so joining the group and being part of the group is really important at, at that kind of place and then as you get slightly older um you start a searching a questioning around about 10 11 12 now just to throw in my opinion here i think i think that's often as we struggle as churches that we don't allow that searching and questioning mm-hmm. we just expect you to just stick with the joining bit <laughs> don't ask it and so if you, we need to get that moment when you know children and young people are ready for those questions which could be well before that or well after and then in in Westerhoff's original theory, you move into a kind of um, owning of Own your faith, faith. Yeah. so that, that this is who you are, and uh, you're living living your life uh, for Christ within a, a church community. However, that sounds very linear, and he would even even in the 1970s in his book Well, a Church of Faith is it is not linear. It's we all move in and out of that all our life. You know, I, I'm somebody who has an owned faith. You know, I would say this is what I believe and who I am, but I still question. Um, I still um, doubt. I still need to know that I belong. I still need to know that security of, of being part of a community. All these things. So that was his original piece of work. Uh, Will our children have faith? And I just read recently uh, some more work that he's done. Bec- and, I, and what I love about John Westerhoff, I think he's still alive. I think he is um, in his 80s now. And um, he, he's he's developed that work continuously and continuously looking at what it means mm-hmm. and how faith grows. Because this is what the, the work is about. It's about how we as churches help each other grow. And he now talks about three pathways rather than these four zones or places. So you've got... The experiential pathway. So this is for all of us. Let's forget about ages, and that is our community. It's where we tell the story of our faith. It's where we uh, there's liturgy, there's dance, there's music, there's art, all those rich parts. We're we're a a people of a story, and in the experiential pathway, we share that together. And then you've got your reflective pathway, and so we're in in that. It's what's happening is the questioning and the wondering and the thinking and exploring a lot of what we do in this podcast. And then he talks about the integrative pathway where the all three come together and you're living out your life. I, I think he talks about as well, um, moving from a, a childlike, from childish to childlike. So we're, we're children together of all ages, a, you know, um, in mission and service to the world. And when, when I was reading this, this new reflection from John Westerhoff on his own work, I'd drawn these three pathways all intersecting because he talks about that and how they're all, for everybody, we need all three of them. Mm-hmm. But for some of us, we won't have, we won't experience all three of them. So there will be some people who their faith journey is all exper- experiential um, or knowing they belong or e- experiencing through sound or touch because they they won't be able to have that reflective pathway of cognitive thinking cognitive exploring they may just stay in that pathway but that doesn't mean they're not connecting with god and not moving on it's not like we move from pathway to pathway and then you're Mm -hmm. sorted and you're a proper christian but all three of these experiences 
will be for some people, but for others, they'll just be on the one path. But we're on it together, eh, helping each other eh, to come closer to God. And he talks about as well about often we've thought in the past of, um, you know, we need to tell people what to do and what to say and how to be. But it's it's much more about walking together on on these paths and helping each other know God. Interesting. So if people good stuff. if people want to read more of his more recent stuff, what would you recommend? Um, yeah, well, I, I found that on a a youth work magazine, which we can put in the, yep. the show notes. Yeah, it was just it was just I think he he'd been interviewed by Youth Work magazine um, to reflect on the work he'd done over the years. And that that was his reflection. So that's 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 all I found. Great. So so we'll put a link that. to that, and we'll put a link to yeah. to the original the original book as well. And so so how? I d- I just have a question. The, the the passage that we're looking at in Nehemiah, I can see the experiential. That's very strongly part of this mm-hmm. story, um, with the experience of building walls, but also moments of celebration. And later on, we're going to talk about the, the tabernacles. I can see the reflective piece in terms of. Nehemiah, and this is quite an unusual um, thing in, for scripture, where the narrator comes out of the narrative and begins mm-hmm. to, to pray or reflect or even talk to God. Mm-hmm. Where would you say the integrative elements are in this, if they're there at all? It's mm. a very good, very good question. <laughs> because I suppose what, what for me took me to this thinking was that, that my feeling with Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah in these chapters, was there seemed to be quite a lot of focus on needing to be in the reflective pathway, needing to be in that place of understanding and standing listening for hours and, and getting your head around what what faith is all about. And, and I suppose for me, as I've read Westerhoff, I, rather than saying, well, that does that matters and it is important, um, but it's having them all together. But where they integrate, I would, I would have to think more about that, Neil. Honestly, I wouldn't. I, I'm, unless it's when they're working on the walls, really. But so, together, sorry, maybe and, I've misunderstood. Maybe yeah. I've misunderstood what what it is, though. But so I'm looking at chapter eight here, and mm-hmm, and I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying about the cognitive reflective yeah. piece that because it talks very clearly that they they listen attentively to the word of the law. But then they also, if you look at verses sort of five, six, seven, five, six, it talks about them lifting their hands, mm. responding, yeah. amen, amen, bowing down, worshipping the Lord with their faces to the ground. Mm. There's, a, there's a responsive activity that mm. is a response to the cognitive, but it, but it's also, I, I imagine everybody is participating in, in that movement and in that, that worshipping moment. So would, would that, maybe, maybe I've not quite understood the, the, the pathway thing, but would that, would that not be an indication of something? One of one of Westerhoff's phrases about the integrative pathway is when you're you're living as a sign and witness to the world. So maybe all these things that are going on um, blend together into that place where people see see God and see who He is through His people. But I'm struggling to find a specific moment. But Neil, you said you had an idea. Yeah, I wonder if it hangs in suspension outside the text. It's almost waiting to happen. I think of that 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 prayer at the end of Nehemiah, which is "Remember me, O God, for my good." Now, literally in English, "remember" means to put back together again the members of a body. It, it means to integrate, and I, I'm wondering if he is. Almost, I don't want to project too much, but almost writing this is a form of therapy for Nehemiah, where he 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 
states the history and he states the reflection and he now asks for God to work it within him so that there can be a kind of holding of this Mm -hmm. in a kind of in a kind of unity and I'm to make a completely different analogy but it's something that I was struck with I was on a, a whatsapp group last week for a group of people who were doing something together, which was them. There was a group of Christians doing something together. I'm trying to be very, very vague in what I say here. You're you're succeeding. A bunch of people were doing something. But but, they were using a WhatsApp group. No, they were using, okay, so I've gone that specific. I shouldn't even say they were using a social media group of some description. They were using a form of communication. Anyway, they were doing a thing, which was at certain points, it was a group of people, a group of Christians, and they were doing things which were on the edge in terms of behavior, potentially alcohol, but also other things, which I was going, oh, that's a bit interesting for you as a group of people to be doing. And there were photos of people doing these. They, they weren't bad I mean, things. Our, they weren't, our minds are boggling now. I'll, I'll tell you off here. <laughs> but but what, what then would happen is there'd all be these emojis of all these people going, ha, 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 isn't that a great laugh, blah, blah, blah. And then the same person half an hour uh-huh. later would post a worship song. Okay. Uh-huh. And I wondered what was going on there. Uh-huh. And I wondered if they were, if people were trying to integrate or come to an understanding of what they were doing with with their faith but it also didn't seem to me to be working very well that you know that that you have all these extreme photographs and then the worship song and it was almost like the worship song was being used as a kind of oh we're still being worshipful uh-huh and actually i think there's i think the kind of integration that you described jen is a kind of deeper mm-hmm. integration I mean, that sounds quite disintegrated to me. It does sound, I felt disintegrated. Uh I think in some ways you're right, because I think that that integrated pathway is the place where we live out our lives. Between, you know, between the wondering and the thinking and the being part of the story community and our liturgy and our being together. And then we live our lives and you get up and have your breakfast and you go to the shops and you work out together what it means to be God's person in that place or God's people in that place. The other thing I, I, th- I kind of picking up on that. The other thing I thought about when you were speaking, I was thinking about the fact that I think at the moment people are quite drawn to spiritual practices, aren't they? There's quite mm, a, a yeah. drawing back to spiritual mm. disciplines, and and I'm wondering if some of that is having lived through a time of uh, disintegration from our usual meeting forms of meeting. Pe- the, the, what am I trying to say here? The, the, there's almost something in the doing that, though you may not feel it you are nonetheless integrated in the doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes sense mm-hmm. to say that. I'm, I don't yeah. think I articulated that very clearly. There's almost something of, in the morning I get up and I'm going mm-hmm. to pray. And even yeah. though I might not feel it, even though I might be full of doubts, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to do it. And, and liturgy comes into that and, you know, all sorts of resources and aids that help you do that come into that. And almost in the act of doing, yeah. you then do feel something. Yeah. Yes, and I, I would argue that one of the interesting things that happens in Nehemiah is there's a very obvious act of doing, which is the building of the walls. What do you do after that? Because I've, um, I, I've reflected recently, I've been reading the story of the Iona community uh, and of George McLeod reading the building of the, of the Abbey uh, headquarters. One of the biggest crises they faced was when they finished. Yeah. Because what do you do? And... 
and you see that in Nehemiah. Suddenly they're doing the, the gathering, they're doing the tabernacles, they're having the, the thing on the walls. They're having to create these experiential acts. Yes. I, I think as well you see it in Nehemiah because I had written down settling versus pioneering. Yeah. He, he's clearly a pioneer, isn't he? That, that, you know, he loves that when he's got this vision and he's leading people to, you know, accomplish something. But then when, he, when it comes to the settling, I think he probably finds that quite difficult because he's a bit disenchanted by the end, isn't he? By, by the other... By the exiles, the and yeah, I, I think he's worried. I think he's worried he's gone too far. Mm-hmm. Where are you getting that from? I, I'm just guessing. No, <laughs> there's no, there's no, 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 too crazy. no, but I mean, what, what, what's making you think that's what I mean? I don't know. There's something about remember me, oh Lord, for my good. There's a, there's mm-hmm. something. I mean, I just think you can't behave like that and not question yourself at some point. You know, you're beating people, you're pulling their beards out. You, you know, the, you can't do that and go, oh yeah, I'm fine with that. I don't think. Yeah, quite complex, isn't it? Yeah, it is complex. And, you know, this this brings us into the whole, well, we've talked about this before. One of the podcasts which we've been thinking about as we've been recording this is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And one of the things that is, it's about the story of Mark Driscoll, who founds a church in Seattle called Mars Hill, and it grows to thousands. But it, it the, the podcast is the story of, I guess, this becomes this all-consuming, numbers-based, financially-based, and ultimately, according to the podcast, person-centric around this person, Mark Driscoll. And in every episode, he talks about the violence that he would like to visit on, not not just random outsiders, but actually his own elders. It's almost the people that come closest to him. And he says there are some, there's a famous phrase where he says, you're, you're either going to get on the bus or get run over by the bus. And he counts success by the number of bodies that the, the bus has run over. And part of the reason he says that is because of a sermon in Nehemiah where Nehemiah literally beats up uh, some of the people, some of the leaders. And he said, if it wasn't for, I think it's, if it wasn't for CNN, I'd go Old Testament with some of the folks here. And, and ultimately, that way of leading is horrific. It's destructive. I, I cannot endorse that. I cannot. Jesus never did that. If, if Jesus is our model of faith, Jesus didn't pull people's beards out mm-hmm. or, or beat them. He, he verbally confronted them. But it, it was with a way that he wanted to see their healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do you think was going on with Nehemiah in that last chapter? Because he'd been away, hadn't he? And he, he he goes back to the king, and then he come he comes back to Jerusalem, and he finds things aren't the way they should be, and people have neglected uh, the temple and things, and then he starts pulling beards. And I, I think this again is a book about walls and gates, and I think that Nehemiah feels that the people have to be protected by by walls and gates. Certain things you can't do, certain things you can do. And that, that is a literal protection, but it becomes a, a symbolic and cultural sense of protection later on in the book. He is frightened that his people are going to be re-exiled because they're going to repeat the mistakes of the past. And so he drives towards a purity within his people that he wants to restore. And I, th- and I think that... I mean, this this is wide ranging, but I think when your drive becomes a purity, because otherwise God's going to be really, really angry with you, I think ultimately that always becomes poisonous. Um, and we we've seen that literally in the um, 
in the in the purity movements that that have happened in the United States, all the destruction associated, all the research that shows just horrific outcomes of those those purity movements that that have existed, or going into church history and we've talked about this group of people before the donatists were a group of church christians who were incredibly pure and particularly about um the way that people had behaved under persecution and there were certain bishops who had turned away from christianity in times of persecution and there were then when that persecution was over there were a lot of people who actually wanted to bring those bishops back and the donatists said no way and it was Augustine who reflected on the parable of the grain and the weeds in the New Testament who said we cannot have this pure church. You won't ever get it. You will create a violent community. And ironically, in order to get rid of the Donatists, Augustine himself launched a just war. That's where just war theory comes from. It comes from Augustine writing about the Donatists. So ironically, in pursuit of... Um, he he pursued purity to get rid of the people who were too obsessed with purity. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's very, very meta. Um, but ultimately, I would argue that that a, an urge for protection become and identity becomes an urge for purity. It goes too mm-hmm. far, and I yeah. think ultimately becomes too destructive. And I wonder if some of that is, is it come back to that pioneering thing. It, it's the it's the idealism, isn't it, of the yeah, the, the pioneer yeah. that that this is a fresh start, and actually, the the idolatry of that is it becomes about me making sure yeah that yeah, the fresh start yeah, yeah. is right. I think if actually uh, maybe we should quote Westerhoff after be talking about him, but actually um, he says something very specifically about this about this desire to make people what we think they should be. He says, we are not called to do things to people to make them into our predetermined design, nor are we called to do things for people that will aid them to become the person they should be. Rather, we are to do things with each other that will aid us all as persons and communities to become, with God's help, what God desires us to be, makes us to be, and what, with God's help, we can all become. So it's the antithesis of what Nehemiah is trying to do, isn't it? The forcing, yeah, and it and it 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 speaks into a a multiplicity of leadership there, doesn't it as well? That it yeah. doesn't all sit on an individual. Interesting. Yeah. So, Jen, did you want to say any more about how you know where you got to with why 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 you wanted to talk about this in terms of what you were seeing in the text? I, th- I think said already that 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 desire that we don't exclude people spiritually, and so if we're sitting in churches where people say. No, children can't be part of communion because they don't understand. And I, there has to be a comeback in that because there will be people in our congregations, in our church families, who who will never be on what Westerhoff described as, as the reflective pathway for various reasons. And and are we going to say, well, therefore you you're not a Christian or you can't you you're not you can't follow God, and that just that just can't. I I, I don't think that can be true. Um. So I think there's a very practical outworking from Nehemiah that to include everybody and and as I said they do they, that does happen but not to become overbalanced I think or to think if you're if you're not doing faith this way um, then you're not in the right place in your faith which I think historically we've done quite mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. and I mean I've written a phrase down the zone of proximal development <laughs> yes <laughs> absolutely no idea what it means do you want to... yeah. I think you wrote that down because when we talk about faith development, I think 
I, I'm not sure where, I, I would need to find out more about John Westerhoff, but often in, in churches when we talk about faith development, we're, we're maybe even unconsciously relating it to um, psychological theories of child development and how, how children develop. And um, in the West, again, we're quite focused on Piaget, who was a developmental theorist. And his theory is very much about, you know, when you're three, this happens internally, so you're able to do this. When you're eight, this happens. And it's a very internal... And he does talk about community and other things, but it's, it's an internal trigger, if you like, that when, when you're able to do certain things, able to understand certain things, when you stop being a literal thinker. However, there's another developmental theorist called Vygotsky, who um, is Russian, and it was the same kind of era, 1920s, they were both born maybe i would get that wrong but you know early 19th century um and so we don't hear we didn't hear so much about vygotsky in the 60s and 70s because he was behind the so-called iron curtain and um, but vygotsky's theory of development is much more about um the place you're in and the people you're with and how that external community helps you as a person to be able to move on developmentally and i think that that ties in quite a lot of what we've been talking about and for those of us who, who work with ch children spend time with children you know the community really matters and vygotsky talked about a thing called the zone of proximal development zpd uh, to friends uh, of vygotsky and that's when you get just the right moment when a uh, you're able to do something on your own that you needed the community beforehand to do that. So an example would be if you're running behind a child on a bicycle and you're holding the saddle and there's just that right moment and you let go and they're off on their own. And, you know, that I think there should be moments of that within our church communities as well, you know, that we've been, um, what can example, reading the Bible together and then suddenly, suddenly that young person is asking the questions themselves that you are maybe helping them find those questions to explore the Bible more. And that's obviously a, a reflective pathway, but it could be in more of a sort of a spiritual, a arty, liturgical kind of thing as well. But I think zone of proximal development is quite a lot to say to our church communities, how we need each other, back to what Westerhoff was talking about. Very interesting. Thank you very much. We'll um, we'll put some links into the show notes for, for all of that. Can we talk about celebration and joy and the role mm. of joy in the community? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of eating and drinking and listening yeah. and responding and it's kind of surprising do you not think do you not think nehemiah when you first meet him he doesn't feel like a great laugh he's i mean admittedly he's the wine he? he's the wine bringer so i guess i guess he must he's, well he's got yeah, you want wine, a guy with he? a steady hand for that don't you yeah, yeah. you don't want a wine a wine imbiber to be your wine server in fact maybe he is maybe he has quite a joyful soul because when the king notices that he's not joyful, he realizes ah, something yes. is wrong. That's mm -hmm. true, Neil. That's like, yeah, that's true. So, because he was grumpy all the time, he wouldn't have noticed. Mm -hmm. But he's pretty focused, though, isn't he? You know, when he's, when he's got a job to be done, he's pretty task driven. Yeah, yeah. And one of the great verses for joy is, of course, Nehemiah 8:10, which is one of the most famous verses, where it says, Nehemiah, his governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the Levites taught the people, saying to all the people, this day is holy. And then he said to them, we don't know whether it's Ezra or Nehemiah. It's speaking at this point. It's a bit ambiguous. And it says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions of them for those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I love that. That mm. just very notion. I think this verse, by the way, can entirely be ripped out of context. I think context <laughs> is overrated. And just to say the joy of the Lord is your strength is just perfect standalone verse i use it and, as my breath prayer that verse 
my is heart. it do you know what i mean by a breath prayer you know when you kind of you you, you breathe in words and you breathe yeah. out words the joy of the lord it's my oh right yeah, yeah nice i mean your your mouth was open there and i just thought you were so horrified that i said context doesn't matter no i thought i thought what you i th actually thought you were what you were saying was that context you needed to put it into the context oh, right, right, really yeah. i've ripped it out and used it <laughs> no no rip it I, by the way, context is overrated when it comes to understanding the Bible. It's a 19th century idea. You'll find very little about it in the Bible. Um, the, um, but I love that idea. It, just changing the subject completely, though, I will come back to it. When Aquinas was putting together his great Summa Theologica on the whole massive kind of understanding of theology and of the Trinity, he began with the question, does God enjoy himself? That was, his, that was the originating question. Is God happy? And he decided that God was very, very happy. Uh, and therefore, the joy of the Lord is, a, is your strength. It can have two meanings. It can either mean that God is joyful and therefore the, the joy of God infects you and that makes you strong. Or it can mean um, thinking about God, joy in the Lord. So I think about God and because God is here and present with me and loves me, that makes me joyful. That's my strength. Can you believe scholars argue about which one of the two <laughs> meanings is? You just want to go as both. It's That's both. Right. Just enjoy it. Stop. Yeah, enjoy the Stop. fact. It might mean two Stop things at once. So reflective about it. <laughs> it's funny, the scholarship is full of people arguing about which one is it. <laughs> But do you think that's? Do you think that happy people are strong people? Well, sorry, could we just say is happiness the same as joy? Oh, oh. I never think it is. Oh, I'll no, I, I think there are people who have deep, deep joy, uh -huh. and it sits. Joy will often sit alongside realism and yeah, pain. Uh huh. Which is not about happiness. Oh well, see, I'd argue. Yeah, I I, I know what you're saying. Um, it's maybe I, about how you define happiness, of course. Yeah, because I would say that people who have a cheerful persona uh, mm -hmm. and sometimes an irritatingly cheerful persona, mm -hmm. I wouldn't use the word happy for them either. Okay. No, okay. I would just say yeah. irritatingly yeah. cheerful. Irritatingly <laughs> cheerful. <laughs> Insincere. <laughs> I know what yes. you mean. Yes, but no, yes. What was your original question? It does joy, that definition which you gave earlier. Yes. Um, does that make you strong? I think it does. Yeah, of course it does. I love what I love about this moment as well, and and I'm, I could be misreading it, but it just seems so spontaneous. Yeah. You uh -huh. know, I often I don't know about you, and and Neil, you're in a different uh, role often in a church service, but quite often in a church service, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, all right, I've got a few this, this to do and that to do, and then then yeah. I'll be able to go and have a cup of tea and a biscuit. You know, but what's really I'm thinking something... similar thoughts, but they're normally things like, what's the next hymn? <laughs> and then someone would just say, no, wait a minute, go, here's the food, I've yeah. got a cake, yeah. uh, here's some nice things to drink, let's have a party, let's celebrate. We, we don't, we're so kind of, we compartmentalise everything, this is a serious bit, and then, then we're going to have the nice bit later yeah. on. And rather than, it comes across a bit in verse 9, then Nehemiah, and Ezra, yeah. Um, let's let's do this. But doesn't you know? that come back to what you've just talked about in terms of your in, your integrative thing? So, yeah. so I, I have a wee bit of a thing about the cognitive piece because I I understand exactly what you mean that there are some people who may not have the ability to to have yeah. that cognitive understanding, but I think there are also people who cognitively understand, but they almost kind of don't let the rest of them know about it. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and so, 
you know, we do, we separate out the the celebratory times and that's not quite as important as the mm. the serious yes, listening to the right. of the law that's time. Right. But that's, that's not right. what you see in here. You, yeah. you see in here an yeah. integrated way of being. And it's it's what I'm going to talk about in Jen's Gems, so I won't go into it too much, but that kind, that kind <laughs> of, again, it is the separation. When I see youth groups advertising, there'll be a God slot. Oh, what? Jen, are you, was, still, are you living in a different century from me? Does anybody still have God slots? Oh, they yeah. Do? Well, they might give it a different name. Is that what they really thing? mean is... No. no, it's definitely not. <laughs> but, um, you know, they'll, they'll do all the other stuff and then we'll have this bit for God. Or, or we'll have five minutes about the Bible rather than this whole celebratory, thinking, reflective, creative community who's engaging with God. And they might not call it a God slot, but the mentality is still, we'll do that wee bit. We'll do the wee bit, and that'll be the bit we, we kind of uh, uh, we've ticked that box, and mm-hmm. then we can go and have a game of nine square or whatever you play, mm-hmm. rather than seeing the whole. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not yeah. disagreeing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Neil, I was I was asking you the question because I thought you were going to tell us about going to the festival of the tabernacles. Um, yes, my wife Anna worked with her colleague Judith who was a Jewish Christian, is a Jewish Christian. Now, whenever anybody says um, that, they go, oh, you mean a Christian Jew? Oh, you mean a Messianic Jew? And Judith goes, no, I don't mean that. Um, So a Messianic Jew is someone who's Jewish who uh, then um, worships Jesus as the Messiah. Um, And Judith is not that. Judith is a Gentile, born a Gentile, but comes from a church tradition which it comes out of her grandmother and is based in the Ayrshire town of Stewarton, where they believe that the the calling of Christians is to fulfil the Old Testament law and still live by the Old Testament law. I'm sure lots of people argue with them about the book of Galatians, but anyway, they're through all that. And they um, don't uh, observe Christmas or Easter, but they do observe Passover and tabernacles. And tabernacles is kind of the biggest point of their year. They have bought, a, this small church has bought a field near Stewarton, which has a barn in it. And for two weeks, every autumn, and the, sometimes the weather is pretty brutal, they go and camp out in tents. I think some of the older ones get to stay in a caravan and they live in these tents and this barn for two weeks. It's quite a big commitment because Judith would have been teaching in classrooms all day, then heading back to the tent at night. And at the end of it, they invite everybody they know to come and join them. And they have this huge barbecue and celebration, and a lot of them are really good musicians. So they, they sing lots of songs and outcome various banjos and accordions and all sorts of stuff. And it's it's a, such a joyous moment, and it's all rooted in tabernacles. And whenever I see tabernacles now, because I've experienced that campfire in Stewarton in Ayrshire of all these joyful Jewish Christians celebrating the end of their two weeks, I think of the joy that must have been in Nehemiah as people had this experience where they remembered the story of the desert, they remembered the transitory nature of the birth of Israel, and they remembered that God was with God's people, giving them the law and giving them the manna by day and leading them by fire and the the cloud by day, an experience of an embodied people walking with God. Would would they so this is making me think about when they were in exile? So mm. before this, would they have? So you talked about you know being a community of 
story, yeah. came to see people who repeat the story. Would they have done that when they were in exile? Do you think? There definitely seems to be a sense that when people have Passover here or when they have tabernacles here, there is a sense that people are doing this for the for the first time. Yeah. So it, it feels that in this particular context, it, it's a rediscovery. Mm-hmm. It seems mm-hmm. to have lapsed. And one of the jobs of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as building walls, is they give people back their festivals. Mm-hmm. Later mm-hmm. on <laughs> in the story of diaspora, Judaism, where where Jews lived all over, well, the Mediterranean, the world, Eastern Europe, Passover and Tabernacles then became huge parts of of what people did. I mean, I suppose we, we also don't know the restrictions they lived under. Yeah, yeah. You know, I suppose if you're subject mm-hmm. to another authority, you may not be able to practice some of these things. Yeah, although it feels that it's not that. There's not really a mention of that. It feels rather that they'd lost confidence in their tradition well, and lost well, and confidence in their story and they rediscovered mm. it. Yes, and it, mm. and, it, and it makes me think about, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, you know, how can yeah. we how can we yeah. sing the, the Lord's yeah. song? There's almost that kind of, how can we? Yeah, we had to lament first. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's interesting to think about what the relevance might be for our context with some of that stuff. What they need to lament. Mm-hmm. Before we rebuild. yeah. Which maybe makes the celebration all the sweeter. Yeah, and I, I guess I mean going back to my thing about timelines. You know, I'm very conscious that after COVID, we say we need to rebuild the church. You know, and it's like two years tops. You know, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. well, it might be forty, fifty, eight years. I know, I know, that's right. By which point you then say, "We are we rebuilding the church, or are we are we reconfiguring what the something, building something the else?" Is? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Good. Well, anything else anybody wanted to to bring to the feasting table of our discussion today? Names. Talk to us about names. We've got to deal with the fact there are loads of names here in this this section of the of the Bible, and I don't find names that interesting. I once we discussed this before in the podcast. There's a quote where somebody had said there are two kinds of readers, those who enjoy lists and those who, who just jump over them. And I think <laughs> unanimously, we've all said, who are the ones that read the lists? Yeah, who does that? <laughs> like, who, get, who enjoys that stuff? If you've ever read G.R.R. Tolkien, it's like when you get to one of the mm. poems, oh, yeah. for goodness sake, <laughs> just jump on. <laughs> but but the, the lists and names, when you read them in the Bible, I think the majority of people read them and think, oh my goodness, this is pretty tough going. And yet they are so important. And there are a number of things that, that remind me of the importance of names. Firstly, my early career was in computing and databases. Databases are massively important. These are early databases that are going on here, records. Um, Most months I'll have an email from somebody contacting me from some far-flung corner of the world asking me about relatives from the parish of Dull and Weem in Aberfeldy. Names and lists are so important. Probably two experiences make me realize the, the importance of names, and both of them rely on the fact that in lists of names, you you then are invited to hang the rest of the story. The, the list never in, it sits by itself. The name never sits by itself. It has a story. And one of those is Remembrance Sunday, when we gather beside war memorials, which have lists of names. And those lists are terribly important. And they were hugely important for the generations who lived after the war, because that was my son's name who is there. That is my... Um, that's that's my brother's name who's there. That's my father's name 
who was there. And, and occasionally people fought very hard to make sure a particular name appeared in a list. Recently, the Aberfeldy Museum Group have gone about finding out the stories of those names. And for me, that has brought those lists to life. So I think one of the invitations of lists like that is, it's almost saying to me, bring me to life, speculate about the names, think about who is here. And the other story, which I think I've told before as well on the podcast, is two years ago, I was at a remembrance, or no, it was a Holocaust Memorial Day um, commemoration that was in Aberfeldy in um, Bredalbyn. And you would think that there maybe weren't too many connections between Bredalbyn Academy in the heart of Perthshire and the Holocaust until you remember that Aberfeldy is full of people who came from Polish families in the last few years to work in the, in the tourism industry. And one of the girls at the school whose family is Polish was part of a school trip which happens in I, we talked about this before, but there's this amazing thing where people from Scotland can go on a day trip to Auschwitz, which which sounds horrendous, although the girls themselves talk about the fact that they hated the fact that as you arrive at Auschwitz, I think there's advertising hoardings above the place and, and so on. Um, but the one of the girls in Bredalbyn had been to a book, which was in Auschwitz, of all the people who had perished there, and she had found the names of, I think it was her great-grandparents, and when she told their story, and, and I think they had the same surname as she did, she said, these are my great-grandparents who are here, and you could have heard a pin drop in the assembly hall because suddenly this got real. So there's something about lists which I think are really, really important to our human story. And although I find them hard to read, I'm really glad that the Bible has them. Mm. Mm. I always like it as well when you find somebody in the list, you think, oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ezra's mentioned there. Oh. Yeah, because you never know everybody in the list. No. But you no. know someone. You know some of them. I know. I know. I also, just in, as, as an aside, enjoy the fact in these chapters that the, the musicians and the priests are celebrated Together. and properly rewarded. And, yeah, that's, Artists. That's a good thing. Artists are encouraged, exactly. Good. Well, thank you very much. That's been very interesting. Next time we're going to be talking about Zechariah. Jen, that's Zechariah, not Zephaniah. Zephaniah. FYI. Um, but before, <laughs> before we finish, have you got a gem for us? Of course. My gem is today really to try and put what Westerhoff was talking about into practice with our children, young people, and our, our church families, whatever age of people are there, Um. And so what would it mean to have a community of people who some with an experiential pathway? So how are we telling God's story? How are we using liturgy? How are we using the arts? How are we using all these different expressive ways to explore God's story together? Are we doing that with our young people and children? Are we doing it well? And then do we have a reflective pathway? Do we have a place where people who want to and are ready to are able to to ask the difficult questions um, to struggle with what it means to be a Christian and to read the Bible. I was just, the other day I was talking to a friend and um, she was reflecting on another a friend she had who is now in her late 70s who had, who was really quite angry 
in her, in her late 70s to discover that there was bits of the Bible that she'd been too scared of to ask difficult questions about, like Genesis and Noah and all the things that we've talked about in the podcast often. And, and she said, I've, I just feel stupid and I, I feel I wasn't given the opportunity to explore these things properly. Uh, so let's not have let's not not have a reflective pathway in our youth and children's ministry that place to ask the difficult questions and explore them and then how are we integrating them how are we helping each other to live in the places that we're in uh, being uh, the light of Jesus in our communities and acknowledging within our youth and children's work that some some people will just be in the experiential pathway they'll be there they'll be doing it they'll be thinking about it but they won't be in the place of of exploring deeper and struggling with the questions and they may not be in the integrative pathway they they may not be in the place yet of 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 living for jesus in that kind of way that we've talked about so have a look at these pathways and work out that's a challenge really the gens gym and i'm going to do it as well for the, the the groups of young people that i spend time with are we doing that well in these three different pathways brilliant that sounds like that's maybe your takeaway yeah you got a, have you got a poem? No, I don't have a poem. Yeah, that's right. This is the this is the this is the week where we've made entries into each other's um, uh, patches. Um, Jenna, I mean, it's just a, a maybe you've got experience of that. I think that one of the biggest issues I've had with people going near the difficult bits of the Bible is that one, they feel they always have to agree with it instinctively. I mean, you, there are parts of the Bible where you. Um, you start with disagreement, and then you move to agreement. Once you, for example, might know mm-hmm. the context. A great example of that is like when Jesus asks us to turn the other cheek. But, but I think sometimes as well, people are really scared that they have to have the right answer or something like that. Is is that how do you take away that that fear for people? How do you set up your discussions so that people yeah. are not thinking, "Oh, I've got to have the right answer to this." I think you have to express that and say that you don't have the right answer and say that maybe things like i think job is a parable <laughs> you know that kind of thing like or is 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 jonah a, a literally true story i think a lot of the problems hang around this literal truth mm. that, that that we're kind of stuck on a literal truth rather than truth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and finding god in the bible and what the bible is and what it isn't and I, so i think if if you're in a position of leading a group of people in that kind of bible conversation you need to be confident um to express how you feel about things and your own struggles and i think that that usually allows people then to express their own and it was i was actually had a lovely conversation with a teenager the other night who has been in this group that i've mentioned often (laughs) uh, during lockdown when we just had just talking about the bible and she'd gone to an event that i wasn't at and she was reflecting on the the presentation around the Bible that had been at that event. And it was just lovely to hear her using some of the skills, if you like, um, that we'd done in the group. So she'd been in that group where she'd been given that permission, if you like, or, you know, it's okay to ask these questions. And she was applying that to places she was going and engaging with the Bible. I don't know if that answers the question. And it was interesting you said earlier on, Neil, about there needs to be a confidence in the story. And I, and I think we've lost confidence in the story, partly because we're trying to, hold up the Bible to be something that is not often around difficult topics. Hmm. There you go. Hope that helps. Challenge to how we lead. So, uh, yeah, takeaways. No no, co- no gonna, competition. I know, we're all going to just observe Jen's challenge, aren't we? Yeah, it's, well, it's a pathways of experience, integration mm-hmm. and... 
uh, integration, uh, reflection, not pathways of experience, integration and integration. <laughs> but it's nice though because it's an integrated uh, response from all of us. <laughs> or as we walk on the integrated pathway together. I like the fact that you paused because you knew how cheesy you were being there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like to set it up. Um, super. Okay, so next time we're going to be talking about the book of Zechariah. And uh, again, any questions about what you're reading? If there's anything you think, I don't understand this. I'm doubting this, then uh, please do get in touch with us. This is partly why we're here, isn't it? To have that those kind of conversations. Um, if you want to do that, then you can do that by emailing outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org or you can obviously contact us, as we've already said, through various social platforms, etc. So next time, uh, pick up the book of Zechariah and we will speak to you then. 